Welcome back to the series examining the mysterious death of Dr. David Kelly, with me, Sam Eastall, and journalist and author, Miles Goslett. When the Hutton inquiry was set up, it appeared to be a rigorous investigation into Dr. Kelly's untimely death. Some of the highest profile establishment figures in the country, from Tony Blair down, agreed to be questioned. This demonstrated its apparent robustness. Sir Richard Dearlove, the head of MI6, who, as discussed in episode one, had secretly told the BBC of his own scepticism of the threat Iraq posed, also gave evidence, even though his voice had never been heard in public before. Truly, this was an exceptional situation. But Miles, you say this public inquiry was nothing like a coroner's inquest for one simple reason. What is that reason? Well, its premise from the outset was that Dr. Kelly had killed himself. So whereas a coroner sets out to establish how, where and when someone died, Hutton had already reached this conclusion before he began. And we heard at the end of the previous episode that Hutton's conclusions were tilted in the government's favour. But having looked more closely at what ground Hutton's inquiry covered, what, what specifically surprises you about it? Lots of things. Uh, let's start with a statistic. Less than half a day of the 24 days on which the inquiry sat was spent going through the medical evidence relating to Dr. Kelly's death. So the medical evidence, which a coroner would normally rely on to reach a finding, was secondary to everything else. And, and what else did you find? Well, Hutton's inquiry was a smoke and mirrors exercise. I mean, it very successfully gave the impression of investigating Dr. Kelly's death, but Many of the high-profile witnesses who gave evidence were red herrings. They could throw no light on how, where and when Dr. Kelly had died, simply because they had absolutely no knowledge of his death. And this was, therefore, I've concluded, a, a PR job, to put it crudely. And what about the status, the legal status of the inquiry itself? Well, this is fascinating. I mean, it had no legal significance per se. Hutton's conclusion was that Dr. Kelly had taken his own life, but this was merely his opinion based on the evidence he had heard. It had no legal force, which is partly why we're left today with so many questions. And what was going on behind the scenes when the inquiry was running? It's clear that those who were aware of the differences between a coroner's inquest and Hutton's ad hoc public inquiry felt very uneasy. And I would put the Oxfordshire coroner, Nicholas Gardner, at the top of that list. On Monday the 4th of August, three days after the Hutton inquiry opened, Lord Falconer, uh, as the Lord Chancellor, asked his private secretary to write to Nicholas Gardner, making clear that he would be invoking something called Section 17A of the 1988 Coroner's Act. And what, what did that mean? Well, by applying this law, Falconer effectively negated the role of the coroner, and to all intents and purposes, it meant that the Hutton inquiry would replace the coroner's inquest. And for those not familiar with Section 17A of the 1988 Coroner's Act, what, what is that section of the Act? It was created to simplify the task and to cut the expense of dealing with multiple deaths as a result of a tragedy like a ferry disaster or a motorway pile-up. And at the time of Dr. Kelly's death, 
It had only ever been used twice in this country. First in the year 2000, when 31 people died in the Ladbroke Grove rail crash uh, and their deaths were investigated collectively, as it were. And then the following year to inquire into the 311 murders committed by Dr. Harold Shipman. And both of the resulting public inquiries were held on a statutory basis. So Dr. Kelly's death was only the third time it had been used. Yeah. And the point is, it was a very strange legal instrument to use because Dr. Kelly's death was obviously a single death. It was not one among multiple deaths. And also Hutton's inquiry was held on a non-statutory basis, meaning it had no legal powers. In fact, Dr. Kelly's death is the only ever occasion on record when a coroner's inquest into a single death has been adjourned using this obscure law so that a non-statutory public inquiry could be held instead. Now, this may sound complicated, but it is highly significant. So what did the letter of the 4th of August, which Gardner received from Faulkner's office, say? The letter said that he should adjourn the inquest unless he had an exceptional reason not to do so. And was this illegal? No, it wasn't illegal, but it looks like a highly cynical move by the government to seize full control of the situation. Remember, Hutton's terms of reference were, quote, urgently to conduct an investigation into the circumstances surrounding the death of Dr. Kelly. But in fact, these terms of reference were very vague when you think about it compared with what a coroner always sets out to achieve. And so what happened next? Gardner replied to Lord Falconer's office by letter uh, on the 6th of August, uh, which incidentally was the day of Dr. Kelly's funeral in Oxfordshire, which both Hutton and James Dingamans attended. And in this letter, he sounded perplexed. He said that he had envisaged concluding the inquest into Dr. Kelly's death during September. And he also raised some concerns, pointing out that a coroner has the power to compel witnesses to attend, whereas Hutton did not have that power. And he also used that letter to point out to Lord Falconer that legally every inquest must be opened, adjourned and closed in a formal manner. In other words, some further formal setting would have to be conducted by the coroner. And what else did Gardner's letter say? Well, it talked about the very important matter of the pathologist, Dr. Nicholas Hunt, wanting to change his opinion regarding what had caused Dr. Kelly's death. Gardner wrote in this letter, the preliminary cause of death given at the opening of the inquest no longer represents the final view of the pathologist and evidence from him would need to be given to correct and update the evidence already received. So what exactly did he want to change? Well, after finishing the autopsy on Dr. Kelly, Hunt produced two reports. A preliminary report dated Saturday the 19th of July 2003, and a final report dated Friday the 25th of July 2003. And surprisingly, it seems Hutton was unaware of the second report, when he opened his inquiry on the 1st of August. But the preliminary report, which has never been published, 
must have placed little or no importance on a potential coproximal overdose because when Hutton opened his inquiry on the 1st of August, he referred only to the preliminary report of the 19th of July, which talked about bleeding from incised wounds to the left wrist. So in other words, Hunt made no mention of the coproximal tablets, even though he personally found those empty blister packets of pills in Dr. Kelly's coat. That's right. So in his letter to Lord Falconer, Gardner said that Hunt's preliminary cause of death no longer represents his final view. And how did Falconer respond? Well, despite the seriousness of the situation, Falconer's department was apparently not minded to allow Gardner to resume his inquest or indeed to formally close his inquest. Gardner asked for a special meeting on Monday the 11th of August at the Department for Constitutional Affairs to discuss the situation. And um, in fact, the Hutton inquiry had begun in earnest that very morning. So this means the Hutton inquiry began that day in London to try and examine the circumstances of Dr. Kelly's death. And yet a parallel meeting was taking place at the same time to try to straighten out the unusual way Dr. Kelly's death was being examined. That's right. Who was at this meeting? Gardner, obviously, uh, plus a man called Victor Round, who was the coroner for Worcestershire, and a parliamentary clerk called Michael Collon, and Judith Bernstein, a solicitor and civil servant who apparently specialised in inquests. And do we know what was discussed in the meeting? No, there are no known notes of it. But uh, three years later, in 2006, a newspaper reporter interviewed Gardner And he said, in his view, that the officials were, quote, reluctant to allow him to resume the inquest uh, until he managed to persuade them of its importance. So you believe that by trying to take over the investigation into Dr. Kelly's death and by not having a coroner's inquest, the government got itself into a bit of a tangle over this? Undoubtedly. And if you think about it, it seems... Incredible that Gardner had to go to these lengths to ensure that the law was followed in a matter involving a sudden death. And what was the upshot of all this? Well, the next day, Falconer's office wrote to Gardner um, saying that he thought Lord Hutton would investigate Dr. Kelly's death adequately. And so Gardner was effectively swatted out of the way. And in the same letter, Falconer's office did agree that Gardner could take evidence from Dr. Hunt and from a forensic toxicologist called Alexander Allen, but it was stipulated that Falconer wanted Gardner to keep the proceedings as short as possible and to take any evidence in writing. So Gardner did resume the inquest? He did. He took evidence from Hunt and Allen on Thursday the 14th of August and then adjourned his inquest pending the outcome of the Hutton inquiry. But He took evidence from nobody else. The inquest was quickly aborted. We don't even know what was said at the inquest because no reporters attended it. What we do know is that four days later, on the 18th of August, a death certificate was registered with the Oxfordshire Registrar's Office. And you think we should be sceptical of this? Well, I know we should. What does the death certificate say? First, it lists the three separate causes of death uh, as hemorrhage, incised wounds to the left wrist, 
and coproximal ingestion and coronary artery atherosclerosis. But it doesn't identify the place where Dr. Kelly died. In the box where the place of death should be stated, it just says, quote, body found at Harrowdown Hill. Now, this clearly demonstrates that the coroner wasn't able to determine where Dr. Kelly died because he'd been forced to shut down his inquest. Had he been allowed to carry on, he might have been able to state more categorically where Dr. Kelly died. And what else is odd about it, in your opinion? Well, the certificate says that an inquest into Dr. Kelly's death took place on the 14th of August, but that really is misleading because the inquest was adjourned that day, having taken evidence from only two witnesses. So it can hardly be described as a full inquest. It was nothing of the sort. And is there anything else? Yeah, there is. Dr. Kelly's date of death is listed on the death certificate as being the 18th of July, but nobody has ever established whether he died on the 17th or the 18th of July. And I remember from your book that you identified other problems with it. Yeah, well, the most extraordinary thing of all about the death certificate is that it was completed and registered more than five weeks before the Hutton Inquiry stopped hearing evidence. Uh, In other words, the Hutton Inquiry may as well not have been going on at all because as far as the authorities were concerned, they already knew how Dr. Kelly had died and they could point to a death certificate for proof. So Nicholas Gardiner reconvened the inquest while the Hutton inquiry was underway and issued a full death certificate without having amassed enough evidence to prove suicide beyond all reasonable doubt. That's exactly right. And the public was and still is led to believe that the Hutton inquiry was a replacement inquest into Dr. Kelly's death to establish how he died. But Gardner's adjourned inquest of the 14th of August closed the case. So the manner of Dr. Kelly's death had been prejudged, but most people seemed unaware of this at the time. And uh, of course, with the excitement of Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell and senior intelligence chiefs who were about to take the stand at the High Court, it's hardly surprising that most people missed this at the time. And has Gardner ever talked about this? Well, he told his local paper in 2012 that he was never under any political pressure and wouldn't have done anything differently. And he said the government was always very proper, as he put it. But really? I mean, he had to remind officials how to act. Anyway, I mean, I've met Gardner, and he's a nice man, and he was a decent public servant, but he is hardly the type to rock the boat, and especially when examining this incredibly controversial death. I find it really hard to believe that on the 18th of July, when Blair and Falconer set up the Hutton Inquiry, Falconer, as Lord Chancellor, was not fully aware of his legal ability to be able to force the coroner to stand down and therefore of the possibility open to the government of opting for a less stringent form of investigation via the Hutton Inquiry. So aside from the legally untidy way in which the Hutton Inquiry was set up, There are some equally pressing questions about how Dr. Kelly spent his last days alive, his disappearance, his death, and the discovery of his body, and a series of holes in the Hutton inquiry itself. 
We've been through these events in previous episodes, but let's now go back miles and re-examine things with the benefit of the information that subsequently come to light. So starting with Janice Kelly's evidence concerning the events of Wednesday the 9th of July, the evening on which she and her husband allegedly fled to Western Supermare, this provides a a good starting point for exploring some of these unresolved matters. Um, What can you tell us about this, Miles? Mrs. Kelly gave her evidence over a period of 65 minutes on the 1st of September 2003 during phase one of the Hutton inquiry. This was the phase which sought only to establish facts. First, it's important to note that although she was recorded by press photographers and TV news crews arriving at the Royal Courts of Justice, she never appeared in Court 73, where the Hutton inquiry took place. Instead, she answered questions from a private room in a different part of the building via an audio link. A photograph of her was displayed on a computer screen in Court 73 while she was questioned by James Dingamans. But in effect, Mrs. Kelly was nothing more than a voice answering questions over a loudspeaker. And what relevance do you give this? A lot. She was granted semi-anonymity of the strangest kind. If you think about it, the, the opportunity for those present to see Mrs. Kelly's face and to view her body language as she spoke was denied. And this wouldn't have been the case at a coroner's inquest. But even if you allow for the understandable idea that Mrs. Kelly was given this special treatment to protect her from distress and from prying eyes, what was the point of her travelling all the way to central London from Oxfordshire and being photographed walking into the High Court if she wasn't even going to give evidence in the conventional way? Why didn't she just remain in Oxfordshire and give evidence from there via a video link or a digital telephone line. Other witnesses did this. Um, In fact, the day after Mrs. Kelly appeared, another witness did this. I think her arrival in London was a staged event because it led people to believe that Mrs. Kelly was on side with the Hutton inquiry. And what about the evidence that she gave? Well, before we get into that, let's remember, this was not the first time that she had ever spoken to Lord Hutton or to James Dingamans, who examined her. They had visited her and her daughters for a private meeting at their house in Oxfordshire on the morning of the 26th of July. So that's eight days after Dr. Kelly's body was found. And uh, Hutton later defended this meeting by claiming that he went there to express sympathy and to assure the family that he intended to investigate Dr. Kelly's death fully. And he said he took no evidence from Mrs. Kelly. But not only was it highly irregular of Hutton to spend time with Mrs. Kelly before his inquiry began, uh, which is something no coroner would have done, by the way, his memory of this visit also appears to be completely wrong because in his opening statement on the 1st of August, Hutton had said that he had, quote, been given information by Dr. Kelly's widow when I met her at her home on the morning of Saturday the 26th of July. So according to Hutton himself, he and Dingermans were in fact given information which has never been divulged publicly by Mrs. Kelly before the Hutton inquiry got underway. And Hutton and Dingermans had also attended Dr. Kelly's funeral on the 6th of August. Yeah, that's right. 
So what about the evidence? Well, in a previous episode, we talked about how a Sunday Times reporter called Nick Rufford had rung the Kellys' house on the 9th of July, and that Mrs. Kelly had claimed her husband was working in London that day. In fact, she admitted to the Hutton inquiry that her husband had decided to take that day off, and he spent much of it gardening at home, and this was uncharacteristic behaviour for him. He, he never normally took the day off. She told the Hutton inquiry that when Rufford showed up at her house that evening and spoke to her husband, she was, quote, alarmed. And she also told the inquiry that Rufford and her husband had a heated conversation and her husband asked Rufford to leave. She said Dr. Kelly was extremely upset and his friendship with Rufford was, quote, at an end. Which all sounds quite dramatic. Two people can have entirely different recollections of the same event. But Rufford said they'd had a civil conversation for 15 minutes, after which he left of his own accord. And it's also noteworthy that Mrs. Kelly gave the impression to the Hutton inquiry that Rufford told Dr. Kelly that he was to be named that night. Actually, it was the Ministry of Defence which told Dr. Kelly that they had leaked his name to the press. And what did she say happened next? Well, Mrs. Kelly told the Hutton Inquiry that she and her husband hovered for a while after Rufford left. Then she said she knew a house that they could use in the southwest of England uh, as a hiding place. And apparently the MOD then rang Dr. Kelly and advised him to leave his house. And he told his wife that they should head to this uh, bolt hole in the in the southwest of England. So according to her, they packed and within about 10 minutes, they left Oxfordshire. And they left a message with someone nearby, is that right? Yeah, there's a barmaid called Lee Potter who at the time worked in the Wagon and Horses pub just opposite the Kelly's house. And she said... Dr. Kelly went into the pub at about eight o'clock in the evening and asked her to tell her boss, Graham Atkins, the landlord, that he was going away for a few days because the press were going to pounce. Those were the words he used. So if you put all these details together, Mrs. Kelly's account would mean that the Kellys must have stopped gardening, packed a bag each, locked up their house and very abruptly fled home at about 8.15pm on the 9th of July at the latest. Yeah, and further complicating matters. Mrs. Kelly described herself to the Hutton Inquiry as disabled. Uh, she has for many years suffered from painful arthritis and this restricts her mobility. And what else did she say? She said they drove along the road towards the M4. They got to Western Supermare in Somerset at about quarter to ten that night and they stayed in a hotel. And she described her husband, who drove the car as very, very tense. And she said before they got on the M4, they pulled over and tried to get hold of his line manager, Brian Wells. Uh, she said Dr. Kelly was exceedingly upset, very anxious, very stressed. In fact, during this stage of her evidence, she was asked several times by James Dingermans to describe her husband's mood. And she replied and I'm reading from her evidence now, uh, very taut. His whole demeanour was very tight. I was extremely worried because he was insisting on driving. 
I asked if I could drive. He would not let me. He was very, very tired, and so was I by this time. And she said they spoke to their daughter, Rachel, as they drove, and she also reiterated that they had a sleepless night in Western Supermare en route to Cornwall. So this is the account according to Mrs. Kelly. But Miles, you found what appear to be some inconsistencies in this undeniably dramatic telling of the tale. Um, Tell us about the inconsistencies. There's definitely some conflicting evidence. Uh, I've talked to people who've told me that they were playing cribbage with Dr. Kelly at the Heinz Head pub at the time the Kellys were supposedly driving to Cornwall. Uh, This pub is about a mile from uh, his house uh, in a neighbouring village and he had played cribbage for the pub team for several years. It was a hobby he really enjoyed. So he was in two places at once? Well, immediately after his death, police interviewed the landlord of the Hines Head, a man called Steve Ward. And Mr. Ward produced an email listing 16 regular cribbage team members. And the email in which Mr. Ward supplied these names was sent to the police on the 22nd of July. So that's four days after Dr. Kelly's body was found. And this email was among thousands of pieces of evidence that was considered by the Hutton Inquiry team. In his email to Thames Valley Police, Mr. Ward wrote that he had checked the fixtures list and Dr. Kelly played cribbage on Wednesday the 9th of July and he then listed for the police other team members who had been present that night. And Thames Valley Police then contacted every member of the cribbage team and interviewed them. And you checked this out independently? I did. In 2015, I spoke to a married couple called Brian and Pat Forster Uh, They were regular cribbage players, and Mrs. Forster told me that she was Dr. Kelly's partner in the game they played on the 9th of July, and she said the game began at about half past eight in the evening. She said she remembered it because she and Dr. Kelly won the game, and she remembered that the game had lasted a long time, and she therefore found it unlikely that Dr. Kelly would have left the pub Uh, before about half past ten at night. And did the police know this? Well, she was interviewed by the police and she described her police interview to me. She said that she and her husband were interviewed in separate rooms at their house because they were among the last people to see him alive. Did she tell you what kind of mood Dr Kelly was in when they were playing cribbage together? She just said he seemed fine. And how else can we verify this? Between... 2010 and 2011, Dominic Grieve, who was the Attorney General at that time, held an official review of the Dr. Kelly case. And in his report, he said Dr. Kelly had last played for the cribbage team on the 9th of July 2003. And he even wrote every other member of that team was interviewed by officers from the investigation team. So we have a fundamental contradiction here courtesy of multiple witnesses. Shouldn't this have posed a serious question for Hutton and for Dingermans? Yes, because the police interviewed all of the cribbage team members and they passed their findings to the Hutton inquiry. But Hutton himself was quite happy to focus on 
one of the two places Dr. Kelly is meant to have been on the 9th of July, and he chose to focus on this very dramatic escape to Western Supermare and then to Cornwall. And Dingerman's made no attempt to discover whose story was true, I suppose. No. And I would say the integrity of the Hutton inquiry is undermined by conflicting details like this. I mean, it's hard to know why Mrs. Kelly would have deliberately misled the Hutton inquiry over something which, in the scheme of things, seems fairly trivial. Why do you think she may have done this? Well, if she did this, it could be that having given the police a witness statement within a few days of her husband's death... Uh, on which her evidence to the Hutton inquiry is based, she wasn't given the chance to amend it. Or maybe she wished to give the Ministry of Defence the impression that she and her husband had obeyed their instructions and left home immediately. Uh, Even though her husband had died, perhaps she still feared what the Ministry of Defence might do if it found out that Dr Kelly had ignored official advice. Who can dismiss the possibility that Mrs. Kelly might have been led to believe that Dr. Kelly's pension, for example, hung in the balance depending on what the Hutton inquiry revealed? You say on the face of it, this is fairly trivial, but actually it's not. It's it's really important because Dingerman's really pushed Mrs. Kelly for details of her husband's mood. And let's not forget that she was giving evidence from an annex, but she had made a very public entrance into the court building, as you said. And she kept being asked about how tense and unhappy her husband was just before he was found dead. Yes, but if it's true that, according to all of these witnesses, Dr Kelly was in the pub playing cribbage, he was actually pretty relaxed and he displayed a certain coolness of character. And so why was Mrs Kelly's elaborate story about rushing off to Western Supermare not scrutinised by Hutton? I don't know. Uh, But what is particularly striking is that none of the cribbage players interviewed by the police so carefully within a few days of Dr. Kelly's death was called as a witness to the Hutton inquiry. And neither was Steve Ward, the pub landlord who had supplied the police with this information in the first place. I just wonder if Mrs. Kelly's account escalated the drama and the tension of the evening of the 9th of July to such a degree that it suited the story the authorities were pushing, namely that Dr. Kelly was a weak man who fled the press on the advice of his bosses at the Ministry of Defence and left his house in the space of 10 minutes and who then felt under such dreadful pressure that he took his own life the following week. I mean, how else do you explain the Hutton inquiry calling Lee Potter, the barmaid who had never met Dr. Kelly before, to give evidence based on nothing more than their 30-second conversation uh, in which he delivered this rather cryptic message about the press pouncing, but then not calling his friend Pat Forster, who said that she partnered Dr. Kelly at Cribbage for several hours that night, or indeed Steve Ward, the landlord of the Hinds Head, uh, who was clearly something of a trusted friend to Dr. Kelly. So you think Lee Potter was called in to help the Hutton Inquiry build its case? Well, I'm not doubting that Lee Potter was telling the truth about this brief conversation she had with Dr Kelly that night, um, because it was witnessed by a customer, for one thing. But it seems very possible that Dr Kelly changed his mind after speaking to her and remained in Oxfordshire that night. 
Both stories obviously can't be right. But for reasons best known to themselves, Hutton and Dingermans chose not to pursue the evidence in this case. Quite. And uh, special mention must be made here of the uh, former Attorney General Dominic Grief, because he appears to have done an appalling job of reviewing the Dr. Kelly case. I mean, he actually confirmed that Dr. Kelly played cribbage. So if Dr. Kelly really was playing cribbage that night, rather than driving to Western Supermare, it raises questions about his supposed fear of the press, his allegedly weak state of mind, and the testimony of Janice Kelly at the Hutton Inquiry. These are uncomfortable questions, but they do have to be asked. And so what happened next, according to Janice Kelly? According to Janice Kelly, uh, giving evidence to the Hutton Inquiry, she and her husband woke up early on the morning of Thursday the 10th of July in a hotel in Western Supermare. And is anything known about this hotel? No. Uh, Its name's never been made public, and Mrs Kelly wasn't asked to name it during the inquiry either. She said she and Dr Kelly ate breakfast uh, in what she called its main dining room, and they read the Times newspaper as they did so. And she then said she remembered reading an article by Nick Rufford, quote giving a brief outline of his contact with David, naming him in his article. Now, it may seem pedantic to point this out, but this really cannot have been true because Nick Rufford only worked for the Sunday Times, which is an entirely separate newspaper to the Times. So this proves that Mrs Kelly was mistaken on this point of fact, if no other. And it also shows that James Dingermans, who examined her, didn't bother to correct her. And did Mrs. Kelly elaborate any further? Uh, She said that her husband ate very little breakfast. She said he then made a few calls to the Ministry of Defence on his mobile phone from the garden of the hotel. Uh, And then came an interesting exchange between her and Dingermans. She was asked by Dingermans, do you know what was said? Did he report back? And Mrs. Kelly replied, no, he did not. He just said, I was okay to continue down towards Cornwall. And what is it that interests you about that exchange? Mrs. Kelly's response used the singular. I was okay to continue down towards Cornwall. Either she and her husband had agreed that she would travel onto Cornwall alone, or she was alone in Western Supermare already. Which takes us back to the game of cribbage the night before. It does, but what happened next was also strange. Uh, Mrs Kelly said that they each packed a small suitcase and they set off directly to Cornwall, leaving the hotel at about 8.45am and arriving in Cornwall in a village called Mevagissi at about midday. Uh, Now, this makes sense um, given the rough length of this journey. It's about 140 miles. But it doesn't explain the testimony to the Hutton Inquiry of another witness, a man called Rod Godfrey. And tell us who Rod Godfrey is. Well, like Dr. Kelly, he was a weapons expert. He knew Dr. Kelly well, and he appeared at the inquiry on the 3rd of September. So that's two days after Mrs. Kelly. And like Mrs. Kelly, he was examined by James Dingermans. And what did he have to say? He said the last time he saw Dr. Kelly was at his house near Swindon on the morning of Thursday, the 10th of July. Uh, He said that 
both he and Dr. Kelly were meant to be going to Iraq on Friday the 11th of July, but events had obviously paid to that trip. Um, However, Dr. Kelly had a batch of an anti-malarial drug called Paliadrin, uh, which had been prescribed for both of them, and he had to give Rod Godfrey uh, his share of these pills. And Mr. Godfrey said that Dr. Kelly rang him on the morning of the 10th of July, uh, saying that he wanted to drop off the pills. And in fact, he said Dr. Kelly almost insisted that he would drop the pills off with Mr. Godfrey. And Mr. Godfrey described this visit. He said Dr. Kelly parked some distance from his house and walked 100 yards up the road to the front door. And he said he seemed distracted. And he said normally they would talk about work, but Dr. Kelly only wanted to have a cup of coffee and walk through the garden uh, talking about the flowers. What about Mrs. Kelly? Well, Rod Godfrey said he didn't see Mrs. Kelly at all that morning. He did say it was possible that she could have been waiting in the car, but he didn't seem very convinced about this idea. So when they talked by phone, Dr. Kelly didn't deny to Godfrey that he was at home and said nothing about Western Supermare either. That's right. So... With the cribbage story in mind, the idea that Dr. Kelly never went to Western Supermare but remained in Oxfordshire has to be taken seriously. And did Mrs. Kelly say anything about going to Godfrey's house? No, not a word. But it would have been a 60-mile detour from Western Supermare to Swindon, uh, which is obviously in the opposite direction to Cornwall. And it would have taken a couple of hours at least, to do all of that driving. So, you know, it's not something you would easily forget if, uh, if you'd made such a, such a detour. I wonder if she even knew at the time she gave evidence to the Hutton Inquiry that Dr. Kelly's visit to Swindon had taken place. I mean, if she and Dr. Kelly were travelling separately, it is entirely possible she was completely unaware of it. Uh, maybe Dr. Kelly died without ever mentioning to her that he had made this trip to Swindon on his way from Oxfordshire to Cornwall, which is why it didn't crop up in her evidence on the 1st of September, but why Rod Godfrey did refer to it in his evidence two days later. And if she did go to Swindon with her husband, it was a strange decision that she should remain outside while Dr. Kelly went into Godfrey's house to drink coffee and wander around his friend's garden. Yeah, and bearing in mind the Kellys had, according to Mrs. Kelly, been forced to leave home the night before uh, at 10 minutes' notice, Dr. Kelly did extremely well to remember to pack these pills, these paladrin pills, for Rod Godfrey in the first place, didn't he? And would it have even been possible to get from Western Supermare to Swindon and then from Swindon to Mevagissi in Cornwall by midday, which is when she said they'd arrived in Cornwall? It's not possible. Mevagissi is 200 miles from Swindon. And if you add this to the uh, 60 miles, uh, which Dr. Kelly had supposedly had to drive from Western Supermare to Swindon that morning, that means he apparently undertook a 260-mile round trip that day. And... That sort of distance is going to take probably five hours. Mrs. Kelly claimed she and her husband were on the road for only three hours. Not forgetting the coffee drank with Rod Godfrey in his garden in Swindon. Uh, In terms of timings, 
None of this makes any sense, but nobody at the Hutton inquiry seemed remotely bothered. And Rod Godfrey even made it clear that he was puzzled by the chronology, but, but nobody at the Hutton inquiry seemed to care. So you have witnesses contradicting the official timeline actually at the inquiry, and nobody picks up on it or even questions it. Yep. And by the way, another witness who appeared at the Hutton Inquiry was a colleague of Dr. Kelly's called Dr. Richard Scott. And he also said that he had received a call from Dr. Kelly on the morning of Thursday, the 10th of July at 9am. The morning where Dr. Kelly supposedly wakes up in a hotel in Western Supermare, according to the official timeline. Yeah. And Scott said, Dr. Kelly rang him to cancel a meeting. And he said he thought Dr. Kelly rang him from home. So we have a deeply unresolved timetable of events concerning how and when Dr. Kelly got to Cornwall. But what we do know is that both the Kellys did eventually get to Cornwall on the 10th of July. Yes, that's right. And these were among Dr. Kelly's last days alive. So presumably some effort was made by the Hutton Inquiry to find out what he did in Cornwall and what his mood was like. Not exactly, but you're right. This was a key period. It was his final weekend alive. And yet it was left almost entirely unclarified and there's a strong sense that it was kept deliberately vague. Okay, so what is known officially? Well, Mrs Kelly's evidence about what she and her husband did in Cornwall amounted to very little. She told James Dingamans that she wanted this unexpected trip to be uh, almost like a holiday for her husband so that he could relax and, you know, might be less upset and... She said they visited a couple of local tourist attractions, they ate well, they relaxed and walked around uh, some beaches and bays in South Cornwall. But at no stage was she asked uh, where they'd stayed or whether they saw anybody else while they were there. So she was really required to make no mention of any socialising, which they did. But I know you've looked into this. It turns out they were together in Cornwall for three nights in a holiday property in a place called Port Mellon. And a couple called John and Pamela Dabbs had a key to this house. And Mr. and Mrs. Dabbs live locally and knew Mrs. Kelly slightly through mutual friends. Mr. Dabbs had never met Dr. Kelly before, but it was agreed that they would all see each other at some point over the weekend. And did they see the Kellys? They did. But before we go over their meeting, it's important to go back to the Hutton Inquiry and look at what Mrs Kelly was asked and what she said about this period of time. According to Mrs Kelly, she and her husband ate lunch together that Thursday afternoon, the 10th of July, and she told Hutton that her husband was, quote, more upset at that stage and very tense. And she added, he seemed to withdraw into himself completely. Apparently they went to lie down and then went for a walk. And while they were out, Dr. Kelly took a call from his friend Olivia Bosch, uh, a former weapons inspector, and was apparently unsettled when she told him that his name was in the public domain. What else did Mrs. Kelly say happened the next day, Friday the 11th of July? Mrs. Kelly told the Hutton Inquiry that uh, she and her husband visited the Lost Gardens of Heligan, which is a popular tourist attraction, and that while they were there, uh, he spoke to his Ministry of Defence line manager, Brian Wells, 
who told him that he would have to appear before the Intelligence and Security Select Committee of MPs the following week, and that he would also have to appear before the Foreign Affairs Select Committee as well uh, to discuss his contact with the media. And he was told that this second meeting with the Foreign Affairs Committee would be televised. How did Mrs Kelly say he reacted to this? She said that he was ballistic, that's the word she used, at the prospect of being on TV. So he was angry? Well, I I think she meant angry and upset. Um, Apparently he retreated into a world of his own and uh, he and Brian Wells spoke by phone another nine times that afternoon, uh, during which they agreed that they would meet in London the following Monday, the 14th of July, so that they could prepare for these select committee hearings. Did Dr. Kelly speak to anyone else? Yeah, he rang his half-sister, Sarah Pape, uh, at about nine o'clock that evening. And did Sarah Pape give evidence to the Hutton Inquiry? She did. And interestingly, she said Dr. Kelly told her that he'd gone to stay with some friends. He didn't say a word about Western Supermare. Um, and she wasn't asked at the Hutton Inquiry about that either. Um He told Sarah Pape about the forthcoming select committee hearings, but apparently he didn't express any concerns about them, and Sarah Pape said he sounded normal. Which is in stark contrast to Mrs Kelly's evidence. She said that he was very upset. That's true. I mean, you could say in her defence that she was actually with her husband, so she could see his reaction to what was going on, and you know, maybe he didn't want to alarm his sister. Who else did Dr. Kelly speak to when he was in Cornwall? He spoke to his daughter, Rachel, and they agreed that he would stay with her rather than going home when he returned from Cornwall. And uh, this is what he had resolved to do the next day, Sunday the 13th of July. Rachel lived near Oxford Railway Station, and uh, from there he could get to London very easily for these meetings. So I suppose that's why they decided that um, he, he would stay with her. And what else do we know from the Hutton Inquiry about what happened on this day? Well, it's very interesting. When discussing with Mrs. Kelly at the Hutton Inquiry what she and her husband did on the 12th of July, one of the only probing questions which James Dingermans, the barrister examining her, asked related to another tourist attraction called the Eden Project. Having been told that the Kellys had visited this place, Dingermans asked Mrs. Kelly to describe it, and Mrs. Kelly replied to Dingermans as though she was reading from a tourist brochure. She said, It is a huge quarry which has some biospheres in it, with tropical and warm temperate plantings within. Uh, It doesn't exactly trip off the tongue, that sentence. Dingermans asked if Dr. Kelly enjoyed himself, And Mrs. Kelly said, no, he seemed very grim, very unhappy, extremely tense, but accepting the process he was going through. He knew he would have to go forward the following week. I was trying to relax him. He was eating, he was drinking soft drinks, but it was a very grim time for both of us. I've never, in all the Russian visits and all the difficulties he had in Iraq, where he had lots of discomfort, lots of horrors, guns pointing at him, munitions left lying around. I'd never known him to be as unhappy as he was then. So having heard this vivid description of Dr. Kelly's 
steely disposition, which clearly showed that, in his wife's opinion, he had experienced much greater hardship and danger than most people in their day-to-day lives. Dingerman's evidently wasn't satisfied. Instead of asking Mrs. Kelly to tell the Hutton Inquiry what sort of work her husband did, which had put him in life-threatening situations in Russia and Iraq, and through that, drawing out from her a fuller portrait of her husband, a man who was evidently used to being in highly difficult, complicated, stressful situations, and who therefore might not necessarily be the type of person to take his own life. Dingerman's probed Mrs. Kelly for more emotional details. He said, could you feel his unhappiness? And Mrs. Kelly answered, it was tangible. And if those listening had still not got the message, Dingerman said, you could see it as well. And she replied, absolutely, palpable. So Dingerman squandered this valuable opportunity to show that Dr. Kelly was not, in fact, the weak, middle-ranking civil servant that he'd been portrayed as, but was actually a man who'd risked his own safety in the name of his country by involving himself in incredibly dangerous situations overseas. That's right. And why would Dingermans do this? Well, I should think it was understood that uh, details of Dr. Kelly's working life shouldn't be made public. Uh, for one thing. And second, um, it looks like Dingerman's emphasized Dr. Kelly's so-called fragile state of mind because this fed into the narrative of his suicidal disposition. And were any more questions asked about Saturday the 12th of July? He asked what else the Kellys had done and Mrs. Kelly said she wasn't sure. But you managed to find out. Well, I, I have. I spoke to the aforementioned John Dabbs, who by the way, wasn't called to give evidence to the Hutton Inquiry, although he and his wife Pamela were both required to give a witness statement to Thames Valley Police. So the Dabbses were their hosts in in Cornwall. Um, When you spoke to John Dabbs, what did he have to say to you? He told me that the Kellys visited him and his wife by arrangement for a couple of hours on that Saturday afternoon at their house. And he said they arrived at about four o'clock. Did he know Dr. Kelly? No, but his wife uh, had met Mrs. Kelly and uh, apparently they were in the kitchen and Mr. Dabbs and Dr. Kelly were alone for about an hour um, in Mr. Dabbs' sitting room and they had an open conversation. And do we know what was said? Well, Mr. Dabbs confirmed that Dr. Kelly spoke to him about the situation that he was in, but he told Dr. Kelly that he would keep whatever was said between them confidential. So... Uh, Mr. Dabbs wouldn't elaborate on exactly what was told to him, but I've got to be clear about this. Mr. Dabbs offered to keep their conversation secret. It's not that Dr. Kelly asked him to keep it secret. So you don't know exactly what they discussed? No, I don't. Uh, And Mr. Dabbs refuses to talk about it, but it is just as interesting to me that Mr. and Mrs. Dabbs weren't even mentioned at the Hutton Inquiry. I mean, it shows how insufficient it was. Mr. Dabbs was one of the last people to speak to Dr. Kelly in a social context. This was five days before he disappeared. Um, He was truly independent. He or his wife could potentially have provided vital testimony about Dr. Kelly's state of mind as they saw it, about his mood, his behavior, about the conversational areas they covered. But Hutton didn't call them. 
Mr. and Mrs. Dabbs, I think, played a small but important role during Dr. Kelly's last week alive. Um, you know, they showed him friendship. They listened to his problems. Um, when, according to his wife, he was near his wit's end. They also supported his wife, uh, who clearly trusted them. And yet, for completely unknown reasons, they were essentially written out of the script by Janice Kelly and by Lord Hutton. Do you know if Mrs. Kelly ever saw the Dabses again? She did. She saw them twice more in Cornwall um, after Dr. Kelly had uh, headed back home. So it's even more bizarre that all of her contact with them was expunged from her account. And jumping forward in time, Mr. Dabbs also told me that Janice Kelly rang him at about 6am on Friday the 18th of July, which is three hours before her husband's body was found at Harrowdown Hill, to see if Dr. Kelly had returned to Cornwall and was staying with Mr. and Mrs. Dabbs. And Surely this proves that Mr. and Mrs. Dabbs were at the front of Mrs. Kelly's mind throughout this time. But as I say, they were essentially written out of the script. Do you know anything about what happened to the statements Mr. and Mrs. Dabbs gave to the police? Mr. Dabbs told me that the police drove from Oxfordshire to see him on the 28th of July. So that's three days before the Hutton inquiry got underway. Um, and their statements were then passed to inquiry officials, but they were never released publicly. So there's no doubt the Hutton inquiry was aware of the existence of Mr. and Mrs. Dabbs? No doubt. But uh, just as with the cribbage team, they weren't called as witnesses. And what did the Dabbses tell the police in their statements, do you know? Mr. Dabbs told me that when the police initially rang him, they were very interested to know about any telephone conversations which he or his wife might have had with the Kellys. And yet, when they arrived to take their statements a couple of days later, nothing more about this was said. Mr. Dabbs offered to show the police around the property where the Kellys had stayed in case they found something important there. But according to Mr. Dabbs, um, although the police accepted this offer. They showed virtually no interest when they got there. They put their heads round the door in a cursory fashion, uh, and that was it. Um, and Mr. Dabbs, in fact, had already checked the place over himself as soon as he heard about Dr. Kelly's death, but he found nothing of any relevance there either. And what about their official interviews? Um, he said that he and his wife were interviewed separately, that he'd been expecting questions about Dr. Kelly's mental state, but apparently there were none. He didn't reveal to the police the contents of his private chat with Dr. Kelly, but he was told that he might be called to the Hutton inquiry, although obviously he never was. And Mars, what's your impression of the relevance of all this? Well, I don't understand why Janice Kelly's evidence about Cornwall was so vague, and I would like to know why James Dingerman's was so fixated on getting Mrs. Kelly to talk about the allegedly fragile state of mind of her husband when there were so many other things she could have talked about. I mean, anyone would think it mattered greatly to James Dingerman's to prove that Dr. Kelly had perhaps been on the brink of suicide uh, at this point in a way that even raising with Mrs. Kelly her and her husband's visit to Mr. and Mrs. Dabbs was not. And out of interest, 
Does Mr. Dabbs think there should have been a coroner's inquest into Dr. Kelly's death? Last time I spoke to him, he said he thought so, yes. In the next episode, we explore the scene where Dr. Kelly was found and, with conflicting eyewitness accounts, further doubts that Dr. Kelly took his own life on Harrowdown Hill are raised. <laughs>